Welcome to On the Journey Conversation, sponsored by the Christian Women's Leadership Center of Women's Missionary Union. I'm your host, Sandy Wisdom Martin. Today I'm speaking with Julie Bussler, president of Oklahoma WMU. You're going to hear about her personal mental health journey. In June, Julie's book will be released. It is called Joyful Sorrow, Breaking Through the Darkness of Mental Illness. Purchase the book early at WMUStore.com. Julie Bustler understands the pain of mental illness and has learned trials not only humanize us, but increase our capacity to be used by God. Julie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I have looked forward to sitting down with you and having this conversation. You were a missionary in a Muslim country, and from the outside looking in, Everything seemed picture perfect, but there was a real struggle going on, wasn't there? There was. I had a great life. I've got this loving, godly husband, four beautiful children, and there's this sense of adventure to our life. We spoke the language. We were settled into ministry, but there was some significant trauma that had happened earlier in my life with the death of my mother when I was a teenager and then my dad actually took his life in my 20s. And I never really dealt with those traumas because I didn't know how to or that it was okay. And so then when I went overseas, I just kind of did what I knew to do. I just pushed those aside and just got busy serving the Lord. I can't imagine as a teenager and a young adult going through that type of trauma. And usually it's our parents who walk with us through trauma and you didn't have that. I didn't. And I didn't grow up in this family that was really spiritual. I did go to church with my mother and my siblings. We would go to church and go home, and Bible study wasn't something we did. I really didn't become a believer, like a follower of Jesus till college. So when she died, she died from cancer. This family that I grew up in, we didn't talk about our emotions. We didn't talk about our feelings or what grief is. And Therapy was not something we ever spoke of. And so when she died and my world just crumbled, it was trauma. It was true trauma watching this. No one ever said, like, are you okay? Or do we need to talk to somebody? We just kind of kept going as if nothing had happened. And there was no adult who intervened and said, Julie... Let me help you. I think my dad, he was just struggling so deeply that he didn't have the capacity to. That's all I can think of. And then my grandparents were there when she died. I think everyone was just traumatized. She died. I can remember them taking her body out just right past me out of the house. And then the next thing I know, I'm being asked to pick out the casket and her clothes write the obituary, and it was just go, go, go. And this was after my freshman year at college at the University of Oklahoma. And so I had my freshman year, gone home to Kansas, she died. And then I went back to college, and no one really knew what had happened. And so I just acted like nothing had happened and just got busy in my sophomore year. I'm in a sorority. I'm doing great. I've got a boyfriend. I mean, life is like this perfect college experience on the outside. But I'm severely traumatized. And because I don't know I can get help, I just hide that. And that just kind of spirals into this secret depression that I was a master at hiding. And it's not like I was trying to be fake. 
I just didn't know how That's else what to, you knew to do. I didn't know how else to survive. Yeah, you just keep pushing it farther and farther down and hope that it doesn't rear its ugly head. That's right. But it did. It did eventually because there's only so long until these coping skills run out if they're not good coping skills. So what happens, I, I finished college. I got married to Ryan. We started having children and eventually felt this call to go overseas. And right before we did, my dad committed suicide. Grieving a natural death, like my mom, it was horrible, but it was cancer. It was out of our control. You could explain that. I could explain it. I still had questions, of course, like, God, why would you let this happen? It was a, a natural cause. Whenever someone takes their own life, it's so devastating and unexpected and shocking that it's hard to even wrap your head around it. But his death, actually the Lord ended up using this for good because God can do this. His death is what woke us up because I was like, I'm grieving this and I have hope in Jesus that I know that someday my pain will end. But there are people living and dying without hope in this world. His death is what really woke us up and got us to where we're like, let's go overseas. This is what we're called to do. We were kind of dragging our feet before that. We got married right out of college, mm -hmm. and we both felt this calling to missions. My husband got a degree in engineering, and he got an MBA, and he got busy working, and we had babies and bought a boat and BMW, and we started living the American dream. We just got wrapped up in that. It's really hard once you get in that to get out of it, unless the Lord opens your eyes, and the Lord did. And we, we kept thinking, like, we should go overseas someday, but we started to let, kind of like let go of that calling. And there was one moment that Ryan, who is just such a gifted teacher of the word, he's an evangelist, he was in China on a business trip as an engineer. And I read David Platt's book, Radical. And I was like, right, we have to go. Like, I was on fire. And I said, Ryan, we have to go. People are living and dying without hope. And he looked at me and he said, Julie, we will never be missionaries. Don't mention it again. And I was crushed because I was like, why would God, why would I feel so called overseas, but my husband not? And one of my friends said, Julie, you are not his Holy Spirit. And it was my first lesson as a young married couple that I can't convince Ryan. And really, if, if he had listened to me and we had gone, it wouldn't have worked. Eventually, a few years later, the Lord completely and radically just changed Ryan's whole idea of what was important in life. And I remember the day that Ryan sold his BMW, his dream car, I was like, we're really doing this. And it was about a year from that moment till we were on the field. It was very quick. So the ball was moving. And then my dad, when he took his life, it really solidified, like, we, we have to go. My dad had, had let go of hope. I mean, because that was such a hopeless position he was in that he felt like death was his only choice. And we're like, there's a whole world that doesn't know about Jesus. So God used that tragedy to spur us on to share the good news of Christ overseas. Thank goodness that the Spirit of God worked in that direction because it really could have gone a different direction. And you huddled together and made different choices. You're so right. And what's interesting about the story is here I am talking about how excited we were. And I know we were called to go at that time. Now, there was some complex trauma going on. I still kept that very much like in its own little compartment away from the Lord because I didn't really know how to lament, how to pour out my heart to the Lord. I didn't know I could get help as a Christian. 
So we had these experiences I did that were traumatic and had this calling from the Lord. I followed that, but I ignored the part of me that really did need help medically. And grief has a way of compounding on top Mm -hmm. of each other. You have two traumatic, difficult, grieving experiences right on top of each other that are both just very difficult to deal with, one right on top of the other. And as a young person, you've not processed either one, and it's just all sitting there. My husband's a grief counselor, and he says, you will deal with grief one way or the other. You just have to. I dealt with grief in that I just kind of pushed it away, and that worked for a time. We did go overseas. We'd served in a Muslim country, and then we served in Europe, and then back in the Muslim country. And so, I mean, I was able to learn two languages, and we were having people in our homes and seeing fruit. Eventually, my ability to just hide that part just ran out. And I'm so thankful. I'm thankful that the Lord, like, let my ship wreck. I needed intervention. I really did. What did that look like? So what happened was, we had been overseas for about six years at this point. We were so excited for my mother-in-law to come visit us because when you're over there, you really miss family. We counted that cost. We knew that isolation would be part of the story, and we were willing to go through with that. Whenever someone comes to visit you, it's just it's so exciting. And so she brought American snacks for the kids, and it was awesome. So we would like kind of play tourist with her for a while, and I remember watching her with my, my four kids, and they're just like so full of joy with their grandma. And I remember thinking, I feel nothing. And I should feel something, but I just feel like dead inside. It's just numb. And then I had this thought pop in my head, this intrusive thought that I didn't have control over. It just, it came in and it was, now would be a good time to kill myself because she's here and she can help get my kids home my husband home and my body home. I sat there and I just, I was like, yeah, that's a good plan. Meanwhile, I'm a missionary who loves Jesus, who can preach the word, who can tell you creation to Christ in another language. And I had lost, I had just let that hope that I had held on to just slip through my fingers because I wasn't really hopeless because I had Christ, but I felt hopeless. And so that was my plan and I wrote a note. And then I, I just, I didn't do it. I was so sick. I don't even know why I didn't. I just, the Lord had a plan. After she left, I was on Facebook and I saw that she posted this picture of my family. We were talking to a shop owner. She wrote this beautiful post about me. It was long and it was just singing my praises about like what a woman of God I am and how I work hard in the home and I'm a loving mother. And I mean, it was so long. And as I read it, I thought, wow, she has no idea that I was planning my death while she was writing that. I mean, she has no idea. And so that was a big moment in my life where I realized people perceive me very differently and no one knows how broken I am inside. So after that, I ended up confiding in another missionary. She was a safe friend and I was so grateful because sometimes in ministry it can be scary to tell a fellow worker This is what I'm dealing with. I confided in her, and I was so grateful that she did not look at me as a shameful person. She seriously just looked at me with love and was like, I think you should tell your husband. I think you need help. 
And so I did. I told Ryan enough, not everything, but enough because I didn't even know how to. I wasn't trying to keep that from him. I just didn't know how to even say, hey, I'm not really the joyful wife that you see. Because depression doesn't always look like you're laying in bed crying all day. Some people are, they're accomplished, they're educated, they take a shower every day, they're a good spouse, a good parent, and yet they may be completely depressed to the point that they need intervention. So I told Ryan, and he was proactive. I didn't have the capacity to get help myself. I really needed him to step in. I was really sick. He made an appointment with a local psychiatrist, and that was horrifying to me because I'm like, what missionary goes to a psychiatrist? I mean, that was something that like, I would see on TV, a psychiatrist. That was such a foreign concept to me, but I cooperated. I remember going into the doctor's office, and this was such an important, like, life-altering moment with the Lord because they handed me this clipboard. On this, it had me write down my symptoms. And the first question was, do you feel worthless? And I sat there and my first thought was, I can't circle yes, because then how will I share Jesus with the doctor? That's going to ruin my whole witness because the Bible clearly states that we're not worthless. But I thought if I continue to hide, because my heart does it, I truly felt worthless. So at that clipboard, that really was a defining moment of your life. So I circled yes. I honestly answered all the questions. I turned it in. I'm sitting there just really ashamed and really defeated. And I remember looking at the women in the waiting room when their heads were covered. They were conservative Muslims. They looked so sad. And I was like, I am just as broken as the women I came to reach. I think the Lord allowed me to see myself in this accurate light because before I'm like, I'm this, I'm this missionary. I have all the answers. I have hope. I'm going to save these women. Really, we're all broken. We're all human. We all need Jesus. I don't care if you're Muslim. It doesn't matter what race you are, or what religion you are, what age you are, your financial status. We all need a Savior. And so I think I had to see myself like, I, I need Jesus just as much as they do. That humbling was necessary in me finally accepting help. And so there you are in the psychiatrist's office. And then they moved you to a psychiatric hospital, right? I did. So I started seeing her and she started me on medication, which I was, again, I was so ashamed. I was like, if Jesus is enough, why would I need medication? Mm-hmm. I was still really hung up on If I had more faith, I wouldn't be in this position. I started taking medication and actually I got worse because I've learned that it can take a while to figure out the right medication, the right dosage. My thoughts were growing increasingly more suicidal. She eventually told Ryan, we need to hospitalize her immediately. So they put me in this local psychiatric hospital. I'm the only foreigner. Everything is in this foreign language, which I speak to a certain extent. Whenever I go to the market and I speak it, I can go home and speak English. So here I am. I'm the only English speaker. And not only that, you're at everybody else's mercy. Yes. For everything. We had roommates and she had her prayer rug on the ground and she would do her prayers. And it was forbidden for me to have a Bible. And I'm thinking, I'm this housewife from Oklahoma, the Bible Belt, who loves Target and Starbucks. Here I am in this foreign psychiatric hospital, 
where they are performing these procedures on my brain where they would shock my brain, which is life-saving. It's called ECT. But I would wake up after the procedure having no memory of what happened. It would erase your short-term memory. So daily I'd wake up and be like, where am I? And call my husband and be like, where am I? Why am I here? And I can't have the word of God. And so that experience showed me that it's so important to feed our minds the word of God because we really don't know when the day will come when we don't have access to it. I never dreamed I'd be in that position. Especially in this day and time. No, it's so When it's so prevalent on your phones, you can have access to it anywhere. Except... In a psychiatric hospital in a Muslim country. (laughs) A Muslim country. So while I was there, though, there was a trauma aspect to being locked up in this foreign psychiatric ward. But there was also good that came out of it in that they would map my brain and show me these images, these scans, and they would light up different colors where I could see, they're like, this color shows the depression we can see Mm -hmm. in your brain. And this shows the PTSD, the effects of the trauma you've been through. And so while I was there, I started to really grasp that this is a real illness. So I kind of thought, I just need medicine and therapy and we'll be good. So then I went home. We moved home very quickly. So they're mapping your brain and you're understanding this is an illness. It kind of had to also be freeing that the secret's out. I mean, I know you talked about the shame and all that, but at some level, was there some relief that the secret was finally out? Well, I wish I could say yes, but I was still so worried because I thought they're going to move us home. I was there for several weeks and then we moved home to Oklahoma. And I thought everyone's going to wonder why are we home? And people who pray for us and who give and support us, they're going to think I'm a disappointment. I'm a failure. I was still so wrapped in shame. I was horrified because it really wasn't on my terms that I got to expose the secret. You know, the, the doctor put me in the hospital and then at one point, I was so out of sorts that they had to sedate me. I mean, that, that's how out of sorts I was in this time. So I think if I had had more control over sharing that, maybe I wouldn't have been so ashamed. I can look back now. God's plan has been perfect how it happened. Yeah. So you, you've moved back to Oklahoma. Yes. And you still have a lot to work through. I sure do. We moved back to Oklahoma. I mean, I've got a baby. So my fourth child was... He was a toddler. I mean, he was was young. And so I leave this hospital and I'm just thrown back into motherhood. I've got four young children. We had friends help pack our house. It was pretty quick exit from overseas. And so you have to figure out what you're going to do in Oklahoma. Exactly. We were essentially homeless. We, We stayed with family and then some mission homes. So we had been home just a few days and I still have jet lag. I mean, I'm exhausted. I'm still reeling from being in this foreign hospital. I'm worried about my kids, what they're going to think about me. I mean, there's just so many worries in my head. And I remember someone, a well-meaning person, looked at me, and they didn't know what I'd been through, of course. I mean, no one one knew yet. And they said, Julie, tell us what God's been doing overseas. And immediately, I put that mask back on because I felt like I was almost on this pedestal, like... Oh, it's a, it's a missionary. Tell us about what you're seeing. And we saw so many amazing things. I immediately just put the mask back on and said, oh, he's doing this. He's doing that. I saw this baptism. It's so exciting. But there was so much cognitive dissonance because here I am. Just, I mean, I am just broken. I feel lost. I don't know. I mean, I haven't even read the word in like a month, which is not like me. 
I'm just really out of sorts. And this is only about maybe a week or so after I got out of the hospital and overseas. I walked back to this back room and I just, it was very impulsive. I was just out of my mind. I began to take my life. And this was a defining moment. I mean, this was like I had, I had given up hope. I think I need to still play this part of what I think someone in ministry needs to look like. And I hadn't worked through yet that we're still human beings. Everyone in ministry is human, and that's beautiful, and God uses that, but I hadn't learned that yet. And so I started to carry out this plan, and I stopped, praise the Lord, and I was hospitalized again. So this is my second hospitalization, right back to back, and this time it's in the U.S. And it was in this hospitalization where the Lord would just meet me, and this is like really where I just started growing rapidly. While I was there, at this point, before God really intervenes. I mean, I'm just like, I'm officially a failure. (laughs) I mean, I'm just such a disappointment. What's my husband thinking? He's back with the kids by himself. I mean, I'm just so worried. I remember being there and I'm seeing like my roommate, she was speaking in different personalities and things I had never seen in in real life. Like I hadn't seen that except on TV. And so again, my roommate, I was asleep one night and they put her in my room. I wake up. I don't even know she's my roommate yet. So they did it while I was asleep. She runs across the room into my bed. She's screaming, I'm not a child molester. And I'm, I'm sitting there like, what in the world? And I have this very judgmental thought. I'm thinking, she's crazy. And it was, it was just almost immediate that I was like, but wait, I am in the same psychiatric hospital, the same ward, the same room as her. And it was again, this humbling experience of, I am no different and no better than anyone here. This was like this theme. I think the Lord had to continually humble me to where I finally could embrace my weakness, but I wasn't there yet. So, I mean, I remember thinking I'm just as broken as she is. But then my friends come to visit me from church. This is my first time seeing like church friends who have prayed for me and supported me and visited me and seen like these highlight moments of life on the mission field. And when they came, I didn't know what to expect. It was the first time that I had no mask. I had no makeup on. Is this when they came to see you at the hospital? At the hospital. And it was, I mean, I'd just gotten there and I'm thinking, what are they going to think about me? The mask was just ripped away because I had on these pajamas. My hair was crazy. I didn't have a hairbrush. I mean, things were restricted in the psychiatric hospital. And so not even a physical mask. There's nothing I could hide behind. And so they were really seeing me just raw and unedited. For the first time. But you let them come. I did let them come. That's um, pretty courageous. I guess you <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. I guess it is. They came. I love how they handled me because I think a lot of people wouldn't know what to do in that situation. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an awkward situation. They didn't come in preaching at me. They came in loving me and mostly listening to me. And then one of my friends she brought scripture into it, but it was such a beautiful and natural way. She just said, Julie, I think that you are definitely in the valley of the shadow of death. And immediately my mind knows that's in Psalm 23. So it redirects my focus back to God. And so she's just, you know, really validating that this is definitely, you're in the valley. I've been without scripture for a while because I couldn't have it in the foreign hospital. And then it had been a whirlwind coming home and It's amazing how alive and active the Word of God is, because even just hearing that one phrase, 
like that little flicker of hope I had left just started to just become this flame inside of me where I started to feel like alive again. And then I remember looking to my other friend and I remember saying, will you pray for me? And this is a very awkward setting because the other patients are all around us and they're visitors. She wasn't like, yeah, I'll pray for you. She took my hands and she pulled me in close. I describe it like, like she lifted her shield of faith over both of us. And she went to the Father for me. And hearing her pray out loud and declare Jesus as our hope in this psychiatric hospital, I mean, I just knew I wasn't alone. That was so powerful to me that they came where I was and met me where I was. They didn't shy away from speaking about Jesus and hope, but it wasn't like this. They weren't reprimanding me or anything. What can we as Christ followers do to help someone who's struggling with mental health issues? I have a friend, and she was my former pastor's wife. For about 12 years, she has stuck with me. She's become this mentor, like a spiritual mother to me. So she's walked through all of this with me, and she's one of the ones who prayed for me in the psychiatric hospital. I often think about her because she built this relationship with me before my life fell apart. So she loved me to where I knew she was a safe person to go to when life did fall apart. And then she had the understanding that it's an illness. And so sometimes irrational things would come out of my mouth. She never acted shocked or judged you or disgusted at me. And there were times where I would sit on her couch and just be like, there's no way God loves me. I'm not a Christian. I really just want to die. If she thinks I'm in danger, she would, you know, talk to my husband and we'd, there would be action taken. If I'm just venting, she would listen. And she knew that she couldn't fix me because there is a helplessness that people feel whenever their loved one struggles. And that's really hard to deal with. But she left room for God to be the one to heal me. She always answered my questions. She would just listen. And so I would go to her once a week. We'd meet at her house. And she wasn't afraid of the often ridiculous dark things that would come out of my mouth. And then the joy has been she's watched this season of healing, and now we get to celebrate it. She has done a really good job at just accepting me as I am, but always being hopeful for me. She'll paint like a, a vision of hope of what God could do. The way that she loved me, I was drawn to that, yes. and then I was drawn to the belonging. And I was drawn to Jesus in her. I think when we, when we can step back from someone who's really struggling and in a dark place and think what they're saying is irrational, but that's expected oftentimes with mental illness. I think that was important that she did that. Well, let's talk about this season. You go through life and you feel like your life is over, your ministry is over, there is no future for you. And then God, through this process, through your healing, is opening all kinds of doors for you to speak into people's lives and to help lots of people who are struggling with the same type of issues that you've been dealing with for years. Mm -hmm. And I never, ever wanted this to be my ministry, and now it's my greatest joy. What happened was, when I came out of the hospital in Oklahoma, because while I was there, I had these experiences with the Lord and with Scripture being spoken to me where I thought, okay, I do see this as an illness. But I would observe the other patients, and we were all under control. Like, we all, we were stabilized medically. 
But if you don't add Jesus back into the equation, it's just kind of this stabilized emptiness. And so there I started to realize, okay, medicine and therapy are helping me. They are good gifts God has given me, and I need them. But Jesus must be the hope. And so I started this journey really trying to live life. I mean, we thought we'd go back to the field, and we didn't. And we were homeless for a while. I mean, we had homes, but we were jumping around. We didn't know what our identity was anymore. And so I started, though, just reading the Bible. And I went on this journey of establishing this discipline of, because there were still times, it's been a long process of where I felt nothing in this healing process, but I would still faithfully meet him in his word every day. I would journal these lessons. And I had no intention of writing a book, my private inner life, Mm -hmm. my secret life of me obeying the Lord and learning and having my mind transformed and I'm journaling them. As this is going on, about a year after that, so I'm really starting to, to start to thrive and my mind is starting to be renewed and I'm seeing you know, therapies working. And then we have this women's event at our church every year. Well, it's in 2020 and so it's an online event. And so I'm on this planning committee. I'm the new one to the planning committee because I just moved back. And we're, they're talking about having women tell their stories. For about 15 or 20 minutes, all the ladies are talking about different women in the church, and my heart starts beating. It's like, it's probably the, the biggest moment of my life. I knew I had to say something, and if I didn't, I'd be disobeying. So I leaned over. I was like, I think I'm supposed to tell my story. These ladies don't even know my story. Jamie, my friend who I've been talking about, knew, but yeah. the other women didn't. I lean over, and I'm, I'm just kind of out of sorts because I know I'm supposed to, to share my story, but I don't want to. And I lean over to another lady and I say, (laughs) I just blurt out like something like, what if I share about being in a psychiatric hospital and being depressed? And she doesn't even know the story, but her response, she could have been like, Ooh, no, don't do that. That's, uh, we don't talk about that. But she was like, yeah, do that. And then I sat there, I didn't say anything. And she's like, Julie has, I think Julie has something to say. And I was like, I think I'm supposed to share my story. So I thought it was just for our local church, Mm -hmm. a one time, they're going to film me sharing the story. And this was really terrifying for me, but I did it. The response, I mean, I'm talking like droves of women. I I couldn't even keep up. Message after message. And it was pastor's wives and, Mm -hmm. I mean, regular people and missionaries with me too, me too. Everybody is dealing (laughs) with, if they're not dealing with it, they know someone who is. But we don't talk about it in church. We don't. And so when I saw the response, I suddenly saw, oh, there is purpose in my pain. There's purpose in God allowing this. It's like the thorn in Paul's flesh that he pleaded, God, please remove this three times. And God didn't. That is what mental illness is for me. But God's grace is sufficient. I suddenly saw, oh, there's purpose here. And so I just... Eventually, those lessons that I had journaled, just my my heart with the Lord, that is what has become a book. I didn't set out to do any of it. I just started sharing, and I would share online on social media because that's what I had. I mean, I thought, might as well, and people started responding, and I thought, wow, we need to be talking more about this, and I have so much hope for the church. It's been so exciting to be a part of it. Well, what can the church do to foster more conversations about mental health? I'm so grateful that our church embraced my story and let me tell our story for this pretty large women's event in our area because 
if our church had reacted differently, I probably would have been like, oh, I, been the end I can't, I will never share it again. Yes. So I was so grateful that the leadership in our church embraced my story and saw the beauty of it and let me share it. After that, and I started sharing online, other women's events have started like having me come be a speaker. I feel like that has been a really good thing, just bringing in either having women or men in your congregation who can share their stories, or if you don't have anyone that you know of, inviting speakers to come, because everyone has a story. Even though I still deal with this, it's not like it's just been removed. The Lord has just taught me to thrive through it and that He is my joy, even in the sorrow. I feel like whenever you hear someone's story, it's so powerful. The church is full of stories just like, I mean, not just like mine, but of the same nature. Well, they're stories of hope. They're stories of redemption. And I wholeheartedly believe in the restoration of brokenness through hope in Christ. And that's what your story is. And I am so grateful that you would take time to talk with me today and to share your story. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm just very hopeful for Christians to finally come to terms with it's okay to not be okay. And there are so many resources available. I'm looking forward to the future and to seeing how God's going to continue to just break chains and bring all this to light. Well, I'm always amazed at God's timing, especially as we launch into WMU's Project Help Mental Health. I can't wait to see what He does through your life, through the lives that you're touching, through the resources that we're producing, through the book that you've written and is about to be launched. I'm just excited to see what God's going to do. He can use all things for our good and for His glory. He absolutely can. Thanks for being with us, Julie. Thank you. I am so grateful Julie was willing to share her personal story with us. Did you know one in five adults experience some mental health challenge? The average person lives with a mental health challenge 10 years before receiving professional help. 8.4 million people in the U.S. are caring for someone with a mental health challenge. Suicide is the leading cause of death among people aged 10 through 34 in the United States. Beginning in the fall of 2022, WME will focus on the critical issue of mental health. We will be challenged to advocate for and to support those impacted by mental health issues. To learn more of Julie Bussler's story, visit WMUStore.com and order a copy of Joyful Sorrow, Breaking Through the Darkness of Mental Illness. Thank you for listening.